I'm Gene Meyer, President of the Federal Society. I want to welcome all of you to our, our faculty conference. Uh, I also want to, a lot of you have met Lee Otis, who's our new faculty division director and senior vice president, uh, waving there in the, in the, in the, in the center of the room. Um, so I want to encourage you to introduce yourself to her if you have not already. Um, with that, and without any further uh, ado, I want to t uh, turn you over to the moderator for our first panel, who will introduce our speakers, uh, Professor John McGinnis from Northwestern Law School. John. Thank you very much. I'm really very pleased to uh, um, moderate this panel on executive power and discretion and the rule of law. Uh, I think we have a very distinguished panel here tonight, and one of the things I think that makes it so exciting is that this panel will view the question from different ideological, different methodological, and dare I say even different generational perspectives. Thus, I'll only briefly introduce all the panelists so you can reserve your time for hearing them. I'll do that in their speaking order. I'll introduce Professor Levinson when he, uh, or if he, uh, arrives, I guess. <laughs> Our first panelist is Harvey Mansfield, the William R. Kennan Jr. Professor of Government at Harvard University. When I went to college there, he was already a legend for his willingness to challenge the conventional wisdom on campus. Today, he remains the leading conservative political theorist and a world-class controversialist. Among his many books, he's written Taming the Prince, a meditation on executive power, obviously very relevant here tonight. Uh, our next speaker is Naomi Rao. She recently joined the George Mason Law School. Previously, she clerked for Clarence Thomas. And most recently, she came to the George Mason Law School having worked in the White House Counsel's Office, which was, of course, uh, the, really the engine room, the legal engine room for the Bush administration's war on terror. And our final panelist here is Ilya Soman. He's also a professor at George Mason. One of the reasons I'm happy that he's there he will disabuse people, other people in the legal academy who seem to think that everyone at George Mason thinks alike. <laughs> uh, and he himself is, is a book that's relevant to tonight's uh, uh, proceedings, uh, in the book coming out, Democracy and the Problem of Political Ignorance, which must be a long book. <laughs> Every uh, speaker will have ten minutes to present their views. We'll have some. Uh, we'll uh, we'll then uh, open the floor to questions, and I hope we'll have a, a vigorous uh, discussion here. Professor Mansfield. Thank you, John. Uh, I may speak in something of a lofty vein because I'm a political philosopher. I'm not a lawyer or or a law professor. My expertise, you could say, is the rule of law without knowing anything about law. <laughs> uh, what is the rule of law? Uh, it's a settled standing rule in place of the rule of unfettered discretion. Uh, unfettered discretion, which, be, which would be the discretion of one man. And executive power is the rule of, therefore, of unfettered discretion. It's one man rule or one person, if you like. All government, I think, needs both, unfettered discretion and rule of law. And the U.S. Constitution is, I think, a pe peculiarly uh, successful mixture of those two things. Now, we can see quickly why the rule of law is necessary, because <laughs> it's obvious that the arbitrary rule of one man either is or can lead to tyranny, the whimsical uh, or vicious uh, imposition of the discretion of that one man. But why then should one uh, tolerate unfettered discretion in our government? And the answer is quickly that there are two defects in the rule of law. 
each of which suggests the need for one-man rule. The first is that law is always imperfect by being universal. Thus, an average solution, even in the best case, that is inferior to the living intelligence of a wise man on the spot who can judge particular circumstances. This defect is discussed by Aristotle in the well-known passage in his Politics, where he considers, quote, whether it is more advantageous to be ruled by the best man or the best laws. The other defect is that law does not know how to make itself obeyed. Law assumes obedience, and as such seems oblivious to resistance to the law by the governed, as if it were enough to require criminals to turn themselves in. No, the law must be enforced, uh, as we say. There must be police, and the rulers over the police must use energy, Alexander Hamilton's term, in addition to reason. It is a delusion to believe that governments can have energy without ever resorting to the use of force. The best source of energy turns out to be the same as the best source of reason, one man. One man, or to use Machiavelli's expression, uno solo, uh, will be the greatest source of energy if he regards it as necessary to maintaining his own rule. Such a person will have the greatest incentive to be watchful and to be both cruel and merciful in correct contrast and proportion. We are talking about Machiavelli's prince, the man whom in apparently unguarded moments he called a tyrant. Now, the American founders heeded both criticisms of the rule of law when they created the presidency. The president would be the source of energy in government, that is, in the administration of government, energy being a neutral term that might include Aristotle's discretionary virtue and Machiavelli's tyranny, in which only partisans could discern the difference. The founders, of course, accepted the principle of the rule of law as being required by the Republican genius of the American people. Under this principle, the wise man or prince becomes and is called an executive, one who carries out the will and instruction of others, of the, uh, of the legislature that makes the law, of the people who instruct or inspire the legislature. In this weak sense, the dictionary definition of executive, the executive forbears to rule in his own name as one man. This means that neither one-man wisdom nor tyranny is admitted into the Constitution as such. If there is need for either, the need is subordinated to, or if you will, covered over by the Republican principle of the rule of law. Yet the executive subordinated to the rule of law is in danger of being subordinate to the legislature. This was the fault in previous republics. When the separation of powers was invented in 17th century England, the purpose was to keep the executive subordinate. But the trouble was the weakness of a subordinate executive. He could not do his job, or he could do his job only by overthrowing or cowing the legislature, as Oliver Cromwell had done. John Locke took the task in hand and made a strong executive in a manner that was adopted by the American founders. Locke, in his second treatise of government, announces the supremacy of the legislature, which was the slogan of the parliamentary side of the English Civil War, 
as the principle that should govern a well-made constitution. But as the argument proceeds, Locke gradually fortifies, to use James Madison's term, the one that he used later on, fortifies the executive. Locke adds other related powers to the subordinate power of executing the laws, the federative power dealing with foreign affairs, the veto, a legislative function, the power to convoke the legislature and to correct its representation should it become corrupt, and above all, the prerogative, defined as, quote, the power of doing public good without a rule. Without a rule. Even more, quote, sometimes, too, against the direct letter of the law. This is the very opposite of law, and the rule of law and prerogative was the slogan of the king's party in the same civil war in England. Thus, Locke combined the extra-constitutional with the constitutional in a contradiction. Now, the American Constitution adopted this fine idea and improved it. The American founders helped to settle Locke's deliberate confusion of supremacy by writing it into a document and ratifying it by the people rather than merely scattering it in the treatise of a philosopher. By being formalized, the Constitution could become a law itself, but a law above ordinary law, and thus a law above the rule of law in the ordinary sense of laws passed by the legislature. Thus some notion of prerogative though the word prerogative was much too royal for American sensibilities, could be pronounced legal inasmuch as it was constitutional. This strong sense of executive power would be opposed within the Constitution to the rule of law in the usual old Republican meaning as represented by the two rule of law powers in the Constitution, the Congress which makes law and the judiciary which judges by the law. The American Constitution signifies that it has fortified the executive by vesting the president with, quote, the executive power, complete and undiluted in Article 2, as opposed to the Congress in Article 1, which receives only certain delegated and enumerated legislative powers. The president takes an oath, quote, to execute the office of president of which only one function is to, quote, take care that the laws be faithfully executed. In addition, he is commander-in-chief of the military, makes treaties with the Senate, and receives ambassadors. He has the power of pardon, a power with more than a whiff of prerogative for the sake of a public good that uh, cannot be achieved, indeed that is endangered, by executing the laws. In the Federalist, as already noted, the executive represents the need for energy in government, energy to complement the need for stability satisfied mainly in the Senate and the judiciary. The case for a strong executive begins from urgent necessity and extends to necessity in the sense of efficacy and even of greatness. It is necessary not merely to respond to circumstances but also in a comprehensive way to seek to anticipate and form them. Necessary to the survival of a society expands to become necessary for the good life there. And indeed, we look for signs in the way a government acts in emergencies for what it thinks to be good after the emergency has passed. A free government should show its respect for freedom even when it has to take it away.
The lesson for us should be that circumstances are much more important for free government than we often believe. Civil liberties are for majorities as well as minorities, and no one should be considered to have rights against society whose exercise would bring society to ruin. The usual danger in a republic is tyranny of the majority, because the majority is the only legitimate dominant force. But in time of war, the greater danger may be to the majority from a minority, and the government will be a greater friend than enemy to liberty. Vigilant citizens must be able to adjust their view of the source of danger and change front if necessary. Civil liberties belong to all, not only to the less powerful or less esteemed. And the true balance of liberty and security cannot be taken as given without regard to the threat. Nor is it true that free societies should be judged solely by what they do in quiet times. They should also be judged by the efficacy and the honorableness of what they do in war in order to return to peace. The American Constitution is a formal law that establishes an actual contention among its three separated powers. Its formality represents the rule of law, and the actuality arises from which branch better promotes the common good in the event or in the opinion of the people. In quiet times, the rule of law will come to the fore, and the executive can be weak. In stormy times, the rule of law may seem to require the prudence and force that law or present law cannot supply, and the executive must be strong. In judging the circumstances of a free society, two parties come to be formed around these two outlooks. These outlooks may not coincide with party principles because they often depend on which branch a party holds and feels obliged to defend. Democrats today would be friendlier to executive power if they held the presidency and Republicans would discover virtue in the rule of law if they held Congress. Thank you. Um, as someone who has seen the exercise of executive discretion up close while working in the White House Counsel's Office, I want to present a somewhat different defense of executive power, one that focuses on constitutional and practical limitations. Let me start with the, the dichotomy between executive discretion and the rule of law. Professor Mansfield suggests that executive discretion is what characterizes the president's actions when in general expediency is required or in the extreme case when there's an emergency or a threat to the safety of the nation. By contrast, the rule of law is defined as standing laws, those that are passed by the legislature. The rule of law is defined quite literally to mean rule by statutes. Now, statutory law has many of the hallmarks of what we think of as the rule of law because it provides us with advance notice and at least some predictability. But this does not mean that executive discretion or even emergency powers are purely extra legal. In my view, executive discretion is very much part of the fabric of our rule of law. My argument is not only with the definition of the rule of law, but also with the idea that when the president uses his discretion, sometimes in conflict with statutory law, that he is operating in an extra legal realm. In my view, after the president acts, the other side of the rule of law kicks in, all the various constitutional provisions that allow us to hold the president accountable for his actions. But let me first take a step back from this. 
I think the extent to which executive discretion is part of the rule of law can perhaps best be seen by some prosaic examples that are somewhat removed from the heated controversies and the war on terror. Executive discretion is part of the rule of law in two fundamental ways. First, just executing the laws requires a substantial amount of discretion. Each year, Congress passes hundreds of laws to govern our modern, administrative, and quasi-socialist state. These laws hardly exclude executive discretion, rather they invite and require it. Most laws depend on the executive and his many agents to interpret and supplement Congress's work. <coughs> this arrangement is one that nearly everyone accepts and the courts have acquiesced in under the Chevron Doctrine, despite the fact, um, despite the fact that agency regulations lack the safeguards of lawmaking provided for by bicameralism and presentment, most lawyers and legal academics consider points about the non-delegation doctrine to be prissy and out of touch with modern reality. So essential lawmaking functions <clears throat> that reach virtually every aspect of our lives are already firmly lodged with the executive. I think the commonplace example of the administrative state points out the very difficulty of trying to separate the rule of law from executive discretion. Discretion is not something relied upon only in times of emergency, but also in the most basic of government functions. Executive discretion is just an ordinary part of what we normally consider to be the rule of law under which we live. To this one might say I've missed the point of the panel, that we're not talking about ordinary laws and the administrative state. We're talking instead about war and terrorism and infringement of civil liberties. But is the gap filling by the executive really so different for environmental laws or safety regulations or education policy? Few people who lament President Bush's actions in the war on terror are calling for a repeal of the administrative state. And yet ordinary executive lawmaking may be far more constraining on individual liberty. So why do we accept such executive discretion and executive lawmaking in the ordinary case? I think there are a few reasons that illuminate why we might also that illuminate why and perhaps suggest why we might be more forgiving of such actions in the emergency context. First, regulations are seen as consistent with the law of statutes. The president is only executing the law, not overriding it. But of course, even in execution, there's a substantial element of discretion. The discretion may be used to implement the law in a manner that reflects the policy preferences of the president, not necessarily the Congress. And executive discretion may be tolerated in this context because it is essential to the functioning of the modern administrative state. Congress cannot manage the minutia of the far-reaching federal government by itself. So I think the, ne the necessity of executive discretion in this context is similar to the arguments advanced by Professor Mansfield for the president's discretion in times of war or emergency. Quick action is often necessary or essential to preserving the nation. Um, I think critics of executive power and of Professor Mansfield's view perhaps overlook the fact that these pragmatic arguments of necessity are really rather the same for almost all executive action. We need the president to act in times of peace to keep things running and implement laws in a sensible manner. And we need the president to act with dispatch in times of emergency to keep us safe. In both cases, the president may sometimes go beyond what Congress has specified in its statutes because it is necessary to do so. Executive discretion is part of the rule of law in another important way as well. The Constitution provides for numerous forms of accountability for executive action that keeps it within the rule of law. Accountability, in this sense, is the back end of the rule of statutes. If the president is seen to go beyond statutory law or his constitutional powers, the Constitution provides ex post legal checks to punish the president and his administration. 
Accountability in this way is a fundamental part of the rule of law, and there are many legal channels for holding the president accountable. Consider just a few examples from the most severe to the everyday. Ultimate accountability for unpopular or unconstitutional actions can be had through impeachment and removal from office. If Congress doesn't act, citizens can eventually vote the president out of office. The executive is also held accountable every day in courts around the country where individuals and interest groups challenge his policies. Our free society also permits numerous political pressures. The president is open to criticism from the media and political opponents from law professors and Cindy Sheehan. Indeed, the First Amendment and culture of free and open speech constitutes one of the most powerful checks on the president. And this possibility of ex post accountability affects the president's behavior as he will consider how other political actors and the courts will evaluate his actions. Necessity may call the president to act, and little can stop him from doing so at the moment of action, but there are consequences. This ex post accountability is a legal constraint that is part of the rule of law. Our Constitution cleverly provides for such after-the-fact accountability, which allows the President energy and expediency for responding to difficult circumstances, but also keeps him within the scope of the law. Of course, ex-post accountability is very different from the ex-ante variety, different not only in time, but in its very nature. Ex-post accountability is uncertain and depends on the judgments of many different actors. Consider all of the questions that arose after the NSA surveillance story broke. Will the court strike down the policies? Will Congress pass new laws to cabin the president's discretion? Would people be angry enough to vote the Republicans out of office? You know, would Congress try to impeach Bush? The many possible answers to these questions reflect the murkiness of the scope of executive power. Our Constitution establishes various checks and balances to keep the executive under control, but such checks are not always automatic. When it comes to holding the executive accountable, other branches and the citizens of the United States have to exercise discretion in choosing whether to punish inappropriate or excessive presidential actions. So, for example, the president may bear responsibility in court, where judges can determine whether the president has overstepped his constitutional or statutory authority. But judges have a variety of prudential doctrines that they may employ to avoid hearing difficult cases or decide core issues of presidential power. Other methods of accountability, such as congressional action, depend on there being sufficient political will to rein in the president through specific legislation, the appropriations power, or impeachment. Citizens have to care enough about what the president has done to speak out and bring pressure to bear on the administration. The unpredictability of these checks makes them unsatisfactory to the critics of executive power. But the response to this unpredictability and ambiguity of the scope ex of executive power is not simply to let Congress pass more laws to constrain the president. The fact that accountability on the president's discretion is somewhat remote and unpredictable doesn't mean that executive discretion is entirely unbounded and unconnected to law. The checks of free speech, regular elections, judicial review, and impeachment are part of this constitutional rule of law. I think sometimes the frustration that critics of the administration feel about the president acting outside the law is, at bottom, a frustration that there is a lack of political will for holding the president accountable under the many ways that are available under the Constitution. The fear that the president will not be held accountable through political channels and public pressure seems to motivate those who advocate that the president be bound in advance and that Congress be able to tie his hands through statutory law. But this was not the system created by our founders. 
the President has discretion to act, both in ordinary and extraordinary cases. After the President acts, Congress, the courts, and the people can work to punish the President or to make him answer for his actions. Fear that the President is not being held accountable is really fear that others will lack the political judgment to keep the President in check. Critics may lament the President's actions, but if the courts, Congress, and the people condone or at least refuse to punish the President for his actions during emergencies, does this mean that there is no rule of law? The President is given substantial latitude to exercise his discretion, discretion, and when his actions go beyond his constitutional powers, it is up to the other branches to say so and for the people to agitate for something to be done. The failure of others to act does not make the President's actions outside the rule of law. Uh, well, um, it's unfortunate that Sandy Levinson may not be here because uh, if he were here, then my opposition to unbounded executive power uh, would seem relatively moderate by comparison to his. Uh, but on the other hand, I guess I can't claim too much moderation given that uh, I'm not one of those people that Naomi's pointing to who want to dismantle executive discretion but don't want to dismantle the administrative state. Uh, I'm more than happy to dismantle the administrative state, and perhaps I could talk about that at great length uh, at some future occasion, uh, but for now I'm going to try to stick to the subject of uh, executive discretion. Uh, and I want to focus right on the key issue that has come up over the last several years, and that is the question of whether in war and emergency situations the President can disregard laws enacted by Congress and be free from judicial review as the, this administration has asserted that he can. Uh, and this, I think, goes even a step beyond something like Chevron, which, by the way, I'm not a big fan of, because in, in Chevron, at least, uh, if Congress has enacted a clear law, the doctrine is that the executive has to follow it. Uh, by the Bush administration's position, by contrast, at least in a national security area or anything that has remotely a connection to national security, even if there is a clear congressional law, uh, the president can assert his wartime prerogatives as commander-in-chief uh, and say, no, I don't have to obey that. So it's even going a step beyond something like Chevron, which, by the way, I decry is giving too much uh, discretion to uh, executive branch bureaucrats. Uh, so I'm going to start off just by briefly talking about what constitutionally is wrong with this position of this unbounded executive power, and I'm uh, going to briefly try to explain why, from a pragmatic consequentialist point of view, it's also undesirable to have unbridled executive power, even in time of war. Uh, so constitutionally speaking, uh, I think Congress does actually have considerable power to bind the president in advance in precisely the way that Naomi suggests may be inappropriate. In particular, uh, I want to focus on Congress's power under Article 1, Section 8 to, quote, make rules for the government and regulation of the land and naval forces. Now, it's important to realize that this power is broad and plenary. It doesn't limit the subjects on which it can govern and regulate the land and naval forces. It doesn't say, oh, but there's an important tactical decisions or issues of prisoners of war or the like, which only the president can decide. No, this is very broad power, what lawyers would call uh, a plenary power. Uh, and in fact, over the years, over the last two centuries, Congress has enacted an enormous range of regulations to bind the president and his subordinates within the military using this authority. Uh, the Uniform Code of Military Justice is perhaps the best known example, but there are many others. Uh, now, some people say, I don't want to mention any names, but some people say, well, what about the president's power as commander in chief? Uh, doesn't that 
restrict uh, the Congress's power to regulate the armed forces, uh, and I would say no, for the most part, actually doesn't. To the contrary, the president's power of commander, as commander-in-chief merely establishes that when he acts as commander-in-chief, he's actually part of the, quote, land and naval forces that Congress has the authority to regulate. Uh, and this actually is the way uh, that this is understood at the time of the founding. Uh, Alexander Hamilton, uh, perhaps the strongest advocate of executive power in the founding generation in Federalist 69, he wrote that the commander-in-chief power, quote, amounts to nothing more than the supreme command and direction of the military and naval forces as first general and admiral of the Confederacy. Obviously, if the president is the first general and first admiral, that means that he is bound by the laws and regulations which bind the other generals and admirals. Certainly, Congress could not say, well, we displace you as the top general and instead appoint some other general. But by the same token, the general can't say, well, uh, I'm going to disobey the laws that Congress has enacted uh, under Article 1, Section 8. Uh, now, obviously, a lot of people worry, well, if you take this position, Congress might impose excessive constraints on the president. Uh, the war might be lost because the military is not allowed to do things it needs to to win. Uh, I think there's no way to prove definitively that that will never happen, and I have to admit the risk does exist. However, there's also an opposite risk, which is the president himself can engage in foolish actions which might be counterproductive, or even if they do help to win the war, uh, they might have ancillary costs which outweigh the benefits of the victory. Uh, so what we have to ask is systemically, uh, w w what is the best way to balance the risks? Uh, because both the president and Congress can err. Uh, I think it's, in actuality, it's unlikely that Congress will impose excessive constraints on the president's war-making abilities, even if, legally speaking, it retains the power to do so. Uh, and that's true, I think, for several reasons. One is the president has the power of veto. Uh, so he can always veto uh, laws that he thinks uh, constrain him excessively, uh, and indeed the veto can only be overcome with a two-thirds vote in each House of Congress, which means there has to be a pretty overwhelming consensus that the president is wrong in order for for it to pass. Second, Congress is also reluctant to undertake uh, the blame that they might get for enacting regulations that might cause the loss of a war. Uh, and historically, actually, Congress has tended not to uh, micromanage the presidency in time of war. Uh, I would note a recent case in point, the failure of the Democrats to enact legislation recently constraining the Bush administration in any significant way, despite the fact that both the Bush administration and the war in Iraq are highly unpopular at this point, still the Democrats have not been willing to take the political risk to impose really tough restrictions on uh, the president's war-making authority. Uh, and I think the empirical record over 200 years uh, broadly confirms what has happened uh, in this particular case. Uh, finally, uh, I think there are serious flaws with untrammeled executive discretion, ones that might actually be counterproductive to the interests of winning the war. Uh, I only have, can briefly talk about them, but I think a particularly crucial one is the danger of groupthink. Relative to Congress and even relative to the courts, in the executive branch, most major decisions are made by the president and a small group of advisors who tend to be ideologically homogenous uh, and otherwise have similar perspectives. Uh, as Cass Sunstein and other scholars have shown, when you have small, relatively homogenous groups, they're prone to reinforce each other's biases and if not checked from the outside, uh, are likely to make serious mistakes. 
Uh, and indeed, our moderator, John McGinnis, has an excellent article that I commend to you where he discusses some of the mistakes that the Bush administration made in its management of the war on terror in this regard, uh, mistakes that arose, I think, at least in part from a groupthink mentality, uh, and that in some cases not only set back the cause of the war, but even damaged the administration's own political interests. Uh, I think an additional problem that you have when untrammeled executive power is relatively short time horizons. Uh, because the president at most is going to serve for eight years, uh, he will tend to have shorter time horizons than Supreme Court justices who serve for life or congressional leaders, many of whom will stay in Congress for decades. And as a result, the president will be more tempted uh, to sacrifice long-term interests uh, for short-term expediency in terms of winning an immediate uh, battle in the war. Uh, and that also argues for external checks on his authority. Uh, finally, I think there's a long history of severe executive overreaching in the area of violating civil liberties that has to do not so much with the character flaws of particular presidents, but rather with systematic incentives that presidents have. Uh, I think actually in the current conflict, we've seen less of this than in some previous ones, uh, but such precedents as the internment of the Japanese Americans or events that happened during World War I and the Civil War do suggest that presidents, if left unconstrained in wartime, are likely to violate civil liberties excessively uh, and in ways that actually do not help to win the war, uh, but do potentially cause immense harm and suffering, sometimes even to the war effort itself. Uh, so as I said, some of these points I would have to expand on in more detail, uh, and I look forward to your questions and comments about them. Thank you. Well, given that, given that uh, Professor Robinson's not here, I wonder if we might give, uh, if any of the panelists want to say a brief word in response to the others. Uh, it's always good to have uh, uh, some uh, 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 conflict up here. So uh, uh, if there is some interest in doing that, or otherwise we can go to a question. I'm thinking uh, go to the questions. I've got some comments on what was said, but... Uh, uh, they might be uh, Fine. Uh, brought up uh, in answer to questions. Uh, or incur. Uh, a question for Professor Rao. How, how do you respond to the, the questions? Oh. Uh, one. Okay. Uh, one, one problem with your view is the question of secrecy. So your argument is um, this is a, a vision of Article II power. If you don't like it, impeach the president. Uh, and the difficulty is that the vision of Article II power was embraced and adopted in secret with no disclosure to the people who then could make the decision of whether to bring impeachment charges. Uh, it's a, a vision of Article II power that those of us on the outside sort of had to deduce over a period of years. Uh, and And... To the extent the argument is based on checks and balances and sort of here's our vision, if you don't like it, here's what you can do. Wasn't there some sort of duty from the standpoint of the administration uh, or generally a duty of a president to make those positions clear at the outset and say, here are the ground rules. I'm doing everything out in the open. If you don't like it, here's what you can do. Uh, and isn't there something different if an administration is to adopt a set of views in secret and, and not tell the public that here's what the ground rules are. Doesn't that sort of make it more difficult to make the argument that those are, are the ground rules and it's sort of systematically that's how the system works? Right. So you're saying that accountability is hard if you don't even know what's going on yeah. behind how do you, Yeah. How do you do oversight with no sight? Right. Well, I mean, I think in part, you know, it's Congress's 
it's Congress's duty to provide oversight. And, you know, the Republican Congress maybe didn't provide as much oversight as some would have liked, you know, in terms of asking questions about what was going on with the war on terror. I mean, so Congress couldn't serve that purpose. I mean, I guess if no one has any idea what's going on at all, perhaps it is hard to hold the executive accountable. Because, but I think that historically these these things have a way of getting out, right? I mean, because we have a free press and because we have, you know, Congress that will eventually change parties, you know, I think that, that eventually accountability will come to bear. But I think it is, is made more difficult with secrecy. I've got a comment on this. Um, uh, have you ever heard of a war without secrecy? So to fight a war, you have to maintain secrets. This should be an embarrassment to my friend Ilya, because uh, how can Congress keep a secret? If the secret is told to Congress, it's no longer a secret. But if Congress doesn't have access to the secrets, say the secret that the United States knew uh, uh, that it was building an atomic bomb and that it uh, had broken the German Enigma code, so the two really major secrets in World War II, uh, if uh, Congress doesn't have access to those secrets, how can it be accountable or how can it uh, govern in time of war? Uh, yeah, I guess just a brief comment. I think there's a, there's a false dichotomy here between complete executive control of secrecy on the one hand uh, and uh, you know, no secrecy at all on the other. In reality, uh, people in Congress, a number of them, were aware of the Manhattan Project. Uh, they were aware of uh, some of them even of the uh, breaking of the uh, Japanese and German codes. Uh, so there are intermediate points uh, in which you can let, a, uh, uh, which actually were quite de well developed over those 60 years of the Cold War, uh, in which certain members of Congress could be brought into certain secrets for oversight uh, purposes. Uh, and uh, Secretly brought in. Uh, yes, yes that's, yes, that's true. Secretly brought in, however, uh, with the, with the therefore the threat hanging over to president that after a period of time uh, the, the there there would be a revelation and therefore uh, he would not be completely unconstrained in his actions. Uh, so uh, I think there's a big difference between that and the administration saying, well, uh, we have complete control over what's going to be considered secret uh, and we're not going to bring Congress in at all. Uh, I don't think there's any system that perfectly balances the need for secrecy versus the need for openness, but what I'm suggesting is that one polar end of the continuum, one where uh, the president just unilaterally decides, uh, is not the one that we should prefer. Uh, yes, uh, David Bernstein. David Bernstein, then David Forsyth. Yes, yeah, so uh, Professor Mansfield mentioned that part of the uh, structure of our system is to put, give the discretion to the wise man to act on behalf of the country when necessary. But I'm a little concerned, what, I mean, forgetting the issue of whether our most recent presidents would, by most definitions, be considered wise, uh, I'm not a actual scholar of the history of the American presidency, but it strikes me that just off the top of my head, I can think of a couple of relatively recent presidents, Johnson and Nixon, who seem somewhat unhinged from what hmm. I've read about them. Uh, we've had a couple pre other presidents, Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt, who are basically completely incapacitated, especially Wilson, 
at the end of their presidencies. Uh, President Reagan may or may not have been in the early stages of Alzheimer's towards the end of his presidency, but uh, from what I've read, he clearly was not completely in the loop on Iran-Contra and wasn't exactly overseeing his people that well. Uh, I like the idea, therefore, of having some prior congressional restraints. So if you do have a president who is in any one of these conditions, which is entirely possible over time, at least the, the White House Counsel's Office has to say, well, Mr. President, what you're doing is illegal. <laughs> and that, that's actually a real constraint. We could, you know, here's an opinion from us. You can't do this. Whereas if you just rely on Cong Congress to ex post do something, uh, I don't know what, you know, if you have a president who's not completely there, I don't know how it's going to work. And comparing this to the administrative state, I mean, if the president interprets the National Labor Relations Act improperly, you know, all right. That's not good, but uh, it doesn't mean nuclear annihilation for a good part of the world. Or if an unhinged president who decides to start a conflict for no particularly good reason, uh, absent congressional authorization, uh, that's, a real, that's a real problem. Did you mean to suggest when you quoted the um, um, counsel to the president saying, saying, Mr. President, this is illegal, but wink, wink, go ahead and do it? I didn't mean wink, wink, go ahead, do it. I mean, the, 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 <laughs> there's a congressional law saying we need congressional authorization for this. Uh, the president is going to do it anyway. Uh, and the president is officially, and, the, and, and, you know, the, if you have the position of the executive branch, well, the president could do whatever he wants in terms of running wars, especially in an emergency, and then we'll worry about the consequences later. There's really not much the president's advisors could do to constrain him at that point if he's intent on going to war, whereas if at least there's a law there, there is an outside constraint. Say, Mr. President, well, we know you really want to do this, but Congress says you can't, and that may actually be a constraint. Uh, do you think that a constraint by Congress could ever be unwise? I mean, you've gave, given examples of presidents who are unwise, but is, are, are the laws that uh, constitute the rule of law always wise? I, 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 I try to give two inherent defects of law. As such, yes, there, are, there is certainly an inherent defect of wisdom that it's uh, kind of rare, and, uh, <laughs> and that uh, <laughs> and, and there are a lot of stupid people around, and um, and uh, and the wise ones uh, can go crazy too, or or lose well, their. Let me, let me just put it a slightly different way. Though. So, yeah, as but that doesn't. I don't think that uh, does away with the need for wisdom, and uh, in, in the in the. Uh, in, in, uh, in, in the use of discretion uh, to say nothing of wisdom and the need in, uh, when you're passing laws. All right, so let me just put it another way. Congress could act unwisely, the president could act unwisely, but the president could be mad, and it's unlikely that Congress will actually be mad. Well, well that's, see, uh, that's the kind of reasoning that um, gives you a very average and mediocre solution. <laughs> we want a great country. We don't want one that... Uh, minimizes risks and uh, holds everything uh, to um, a, a low level of uh, wh what, uh, at worst, we can uh, hope for. Thank you, John. Um, the Constitution was formed to secure the blessings to us and to our posterity. Uh, that's a very pregnant phrase, and, I and pun not intended. Um, <laughs> The, the, the founders had a sense of time uh, that's most reflected in English, in English political theory in Burke. It wasn't a time slice moment. 
And so when we look at uh, the judgments made to Lincoln and his suspension of quite literally many of the attributes of the Constitution, or to Roosevelt, uh, or to Reagan, or to Bush, we forget that one of the great checks in a free Republican society of representation and free press and parties is that of time and of reflection. And many presidents and their actions, such as the, the relocation of the Japanese, could not be redone because we regard, in, in retrospect, we now see that it was unwise, as well as unjust, unwise in the larger sense of being unjust and imprudent as well. Uh, so I think one of the checks, everyone keeps talking about, what, what can we do to have an instant check, an instant mechanism of something that's, uh, that may be gone awry? And I think we forget that we, we do not live in a secret society. We live in a Republican free society. And that reflection over time normally to a reasonable free people will bring us to the right conclusions. I, may, may I ask the comments of the panel on that view? Well, I think it takes in so many things I can't possibly comment at all, but I will latch on to one point which has already been raised, which is the issue of uh, ex-post checks versus ex-ante checks. So to some extent, what I'm arguing for is that we need ex-ante checks to constrain presidential power, whereas the other uh, panelists, I think, want to rely primarily, perhaps even exclusively, on after-the-fact constraints. Uh, and I think there is uh, a couple of reasons why we want to, uh, to some extent, at least tie the president's hands in advance. One is the one that David pointed to, uh, that because, precisely because the president is only one man, there's a much higher chance that only one man will do something really crazy or wacky or dangerous than there is with a, you know, a bunch of media, oh, 435 or 535 mediocrities in Congress. Yes, I, I don't particularly like those people. I probably like them even less than Professor Mansfield does. Uh, but nonetheless, their mediocrity has this virtue uh, that they're unlikely to do something tremendously stupid and destructive uh, because they're unlikely to all be insane or wacky in the same way all at once. At that point, may I interject? Uh, so I, I take it you'd, you'd trade Buchanan for Lincoln. Uh, well, uh, Buchanan, uh, Lincoln was not insane in this way, but uh, Lincoln did undertake some measures during the Civil War that I think were excessive, such as uh, imprisoning people without trial for criticizing a draft. Uh, so on balance, yes, Lincoln was better than Buchanan. I, I happy to concede that. However, the real question is, was Lincoln, uh, did Lincoln do the right thing in those areas where he acted illegally, either contrary to the Constitution or contrary to congressionally enacted law? And I would suggest in quite a number of those areas, he didn't do the right thing. He did the wrong thing. Uh, and that even if that's evident to us only in retrospect, uh, in, we should, going forward, uh, we should take account of that experience that even if, if even a great president like Lincoln is likely to make those types of mistakes, then a more typical, mediocre president is even more likely to make them and therefore need to be constrained in advance even more. Uh, so the very last thing I will say about advanced constraints uh, is that sometimes 
uh, once you've actually gone down a particular road, it becomes institutionalized and it's very hard to reverse it after the fact. Uh, once you intern the Japanese Americans, it's very hard to reverse it. Uh, once you set up Guantanamo in a particular way the administration has, uh, it's very hard to reverse that. I'm not saying that's anywhere near as bad as the internment of Japanese Americans, but nonetheless, it's a hard thing to alter. Uh, so I think a truly great country, one of the things that it does uh, is instead of hoping to clean up grave errors after the fact, it tries to avoid making them in the first place. Uh, and I think a, a lot of our greatness actually does rest on that, that uh, we've avoided more of the big errors than most other societies have. Risk averse we are. That's what we've been, according to you. I think that's very wrong. It's uh, also not clear that we avoid those mistakes because of statutes passed by Congress. Sometimes we do. <laughs> I'd like to say a word on the, um, on the internment of the Japanese Americans. Uh, I, I, I think um, uh, it is possible to defend that. Uh, th and by the way, there, there is an instance where there was a constraint brought against presidential power. And a case was brought to the Supreme Court in 1944, and Cory Matzo case was one of the few uh, points of law I happen to uh, vaguely remember. And, <laughs> and, uh, and the court ruled in favor of Roosevelt. So uh, there, there, uh, there, there, that was a, uh, a, an ex post uh, uh, constraint that we now regard as uh, having been wrong. And I'm not sure that our position, which is much later and, uh, and, 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 and more, very much more retrospective, is any wiser than uh, that the Supreme Court took in 1944. I think that uh, uh, the Japanese could have been a... Um, uh, are, are uh, a, a danger to uh, California and the rest of uh, the United States. And uh, he, uh, Roosevelt had to make a quick decision, and uh, he made one that was uh, wrong in, in, in retrospect, but I'm not sure it was wrong in prospect. That is one that a prudent person uh, w wouldn't have um, been anxious for. So, uh, and, and I, there's, an, uh, there's a character in one of John Updike's novels. A Japanese uh, car manufacturer comes to the United States and goes and talks to someone, and someone asks him about this, and he answers with two words Was war? Yes. Yes, uh, I have a question for Naomi Rao and a question for Ilya. So, uh, my question is yeah, I have a question for Naomi and for Ilya. Uh, the question for Naomi is. Um, uh, isn't it possible to violate Article 2 without committing a high crime and misdemeanor? And if that's right, then uh, uh, basically aren't we just left with uh, Cindy Sheehan uh, as, as a constraint? And uh, for Ilya, the question is, why do you, why do you suppose the Constitution uh, singled out uh, uh, Army activity, Commander-in-Chief activity, as a, as a distinctly important function uh, for the Chief Executive as opposed to other uh, management functions uh, uh, the the uh, president has. Isn't it possible that the the uh, framers thought uh, that uh, war making activity is somehow inherently uh, extra legal, or or or, or uh, the president has greater Article Two powers in that context uh, than in other contexts? So, for example, if Congress were to pass a statute, uh, say a, a Rules of Engagement Act, that says uh, no American uh, armed forces member can shoot first against a non-belligerent. Say, uh, uh, is, is, isn't there is there any doubt that you know if the president shoots first first if uh, Putin starts up with him uh, uh, that 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 would not be a violation of Article Two? 
Well, I think that there are other ex post checks besides impeachment. I mean, impeachment is sort of the most extreme, but, I mean, we have judicial review of the president's actions. We have, you know, Congress can act in other ways. They can cut off funding for, you know, mistakes that the president may have made. They can try to pass statutes, and, you know, if the president vetoes them, if there's enough political will, they can override the president's veto. Um, and then there's a lot of public pressure that can be brought to bear on an administration. I mean, you know, I've worked in the White House. Obviously, those things are not insignificant to the decision-making process that goes on. And I think all of those things do constrain what the president's willing to do or what he might do to correct things that are unpopular um, after the fact. So I think it's not just impeachment. I think there are a lot of checks that are available. Uh, I guess uh, on, the, on, on the question of uh, why the commander-in-chief power is singled out in Article 2 as opposed to other uh, administrative power, the answer is simple. The framers did not envision a massive domestic administrative state. They thought that would be prevented by narrowly enumerating uh, uh, federal authority under both Articles 1 and 2, but they did want to give the federal government power to uh, defend the country, uh, and therefore uh, that's why that was treated differently, because most of these other powers that belong to modern administration simply were not expected to exist or to be constitutional at the time. Uh, on your more narrow question uh, of the issue, well, what if, essentially your question is, what if Congress enacts excessively uh, restrictive regulations about presidential uh, authority or about rules of engagement and the like? Is that, is that ultimately the issue? Yeah, so uh, I think legally speaking, Congress does have the authority to that. In fact, Congress has enacted laws, which until this administration, everybody agreed with constitutional, that do precisely that. That they, for instance, it has enacted laws restricting the use of chemical and biological weapons, even if the president or his subordinate military commanders determined that the use of chemical weapons would be desirable or would save American lives, uh, still at least until this administration it was accepted that the president could not legally speaking issue orders to do that. Uh, so as I said in my presentation, there is therefore a risk that Congress will excessively constrain the president, but as I tried to argue, uh, that risk is itself constrained by a variety of political and institutional factors and has to be balanced against the opposite risk, which is the president will make serious mistakes. Uh, so uh, ultimately, to my mind, a free society, a great society, has to be risk-averse uh, about the risks of tyranny precisely so that we can be risk-acceptant about the benefits of freedom, which we intend to preserve. Uh, uh, wait a minute. Uh, can I? Uh, um, but wouldn't you have to admit that there's at least an arguable case for um, the stronger view of the president's power as commander-in-chief. And, and here, here, I think, is the, the general mistake that you make, Ilya, when you interpret the Constitution. You look for an identifiable sovereign or legal power in every case. I think the Constitution is a, um, is, is a law, but it's a law that sets up, it's a political document, too. It sets up a political struggle between the three branches. The, uh, the most essential part of Republican government, according to the Constitution, is not so much that uh, the government is elected, but it's uh, what the Federalists called auxiliary precautions. And, those, and the two main ones are separation of powers and federalism. And, and, the, and, and the one we're talking about is separation of powers. To, in order for separation of powers to remain alive, each power has to be able to defend itself against the other two. 
each power has to be independent of the other two. In all previous republics that tried to separate powers, this was not done. So each branch gets a set of powers, but those powers are not defined in such a way that there will always be uh, an obvious, or, or which means a bright line or legal answer to who is going to prevail. So, uh, 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 so it depends on the circumstances that um, it, it, the rule of law will be will prevail if Congress seems to present a pos or hold a position that the people think is more uh, is, is, is more respectable or more uh, beneficial, and the president will win if, uh, if, uh, if 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 the people think that he's better. And it isn't only the people, it's also the other branches, how much Congress wants to, um, for example, you mentioned the Democrats uh, not, not really fighting to the death on, um, on ending the war in Iraq, which is perfectly true. That, that shows how much they really believe in exercising their powers. So you can't just look at the powers themselves without the circumstances and, and decide ahead of time which one is sovereign. I don't think our Constitution has a single sovereign power or result in any particular case. It's a, it's a document which uh, um, uh, takes account of the necessity of uh, the politics of freedom and of self-government. I think so. Otherwise, I'm, I'm trying to constrain my own discretion in calling on the first person I, and people I've seen in order of the time I've seen them. Uh, please raise your hand again. Uh, it was, yes, it was, uh, was uh, Sasha Volk. I think we have. Uh, it's a little bit frustrating that there are a couple of rhetorics that uh, don't seem to be talking to one another. Um, uh, from uh, uh, based on what um, Harvey has said, uh, it's true that um, you know we need discretion, but we also need stability. And when you phrase it on that sort of level of generality, who can disagree with that? And uh, based on what Naomi has said, it's true that I don't think that the rule of law always has to be enforced by ex-ante constraints. I can think of all sorts of ex post things, and even the ex post constraint that is merely the possibility of being voted out of office in the next election. I concede that that is a form of rule of law which is better than nothing. So, it's, uh, so when you, again, when you phrase it at that level of generality, it's hard to, to say that anything is per se off the table. And it's even hard for me to even envision the question should we have more ex ante versus ex post, or should we have more discretion versus um, versus, um, versus stability, because there are so many ways of having more or less. I don't even know how to do the cost-benefit analysis there. So that's why the only, the only question I can get, wrap my mind around is if you look at a specific claimed abuse uh, of the rule of law and then look at whether that specific claimed abuse is consistent with either the rule of law as seen through constitutional doctrine or the rule of law as seen through some more pragmatic inquiry. Um, so what I do understand is what Elia has said about the specific uh, debate of whether there is this inherent Article II commander-in-chief power that allows the president to uh, ignore a clear congressional statute to the contrary. So um, I was just wondering if uh, either Harvey or Naomi or both of you could uh, address uh, that particular point. 
can you sorry, can you just repeat the last part of your, your question? Could you just address Elia's point about um, the um, about whether there is an inherent Article II commander in chief power that would allow the president to um, uh, to uh, um, disregard a clear congressional statute that would bind him? Well, I think that that question is also phrased at a certain level of generality, right? You, you can make you know? it as specific as you like. Oh, right. I just I would like to make everything more specific instead of more general. Right. Um, well, I think that there is some inherent commander-in-chief authority to disregard statutes in certain circumstances. I'm not saying in every instance that would be appropriate, but a judgment about whether that's appropriate or not is going to depend a lot on the circumstances. But I do think that there is an inherent authority for the president to sometimes act outside of statutory law. Yeah, and uh, Ilya himself gave an example of it on the um, prohibition of the use of chemical weapons or biological weapons um, uh, that, that I think would be uh, something that the president could do and could violate if um, uh, under, the, uh, under his power as commander-in-chief. And see, in an arguable power, he might not be able to prove it to you, Ilya. <laughs> but the, the question is whether he could get or thinks he could get uh, uh, a majority and not necessarily a majority that would uh, be able to unseat him or depose him immediately, but one that in the future would regard this as wise. Uh, yes, Randy. Hi, Randy Barnett from Georgetown. I think my talk, my comment is, or question is more for Harvey than anyone else. I was very taken with the last contribution you made about the fact that sovereignty doesn't really reside in any one of the three branches in particular, uh, which is something, a position I'm very sympathetic with myself. So I'm just wondering how that position would translate outside of the area of executive power into the area of judicial power such that it would no longer be a major conflict over sovereignty for judges to tell the legislature that something that they've done is unconstitutional, perhaps has violated a right retained by the people, let's say. And that would not be a question that would be resolved by an appeal to the sovereignty inherent in Congress as opposed to, say, the judiciary. I'm just wondering if you would generalize from the case of the executive power to the case of judicial power and what lessons or what implications would that generalization have? Well, I haven't thought about this uh, uh, as you have, <laughs> uh, as deeply uh, as you have, but um, uh, I would say this, that uh, the, the, the idea that the three powers should be independent and therefore should be able to maintain their independence against the others is challenged by the uh, introduction of the Supreme Court as, as the uh, judge of those disputes. So uh, then is the judiciary led by the Supreme Court uh, just one of the three powers or is it the superpower because it judges uh, questions uh, between those three powers when they arise? So, I mean, and to me that's a kind of a problem or uh, enigma of our, our Constitution our, and its practice as it's evolved of, of judicial review. And, um, uh, and, and so I, th I think it's something that uh, what we, we need to watch out for. In other words, a kind of uh, a 
practical claim by the Supreme Court without ever saying so of its superiority to the other two branches. If I could just follow up just briefly because I appreciate your response and I think it is responsive to what I'm saying. But I guess my issue isn't so much when I tend to believe in departmentalism that each branch gets in some sense to be the judge of the constitutionality of what it does or is obligated to judge the constitutionality of what it does. I accept that. Yeah, that would be the alternative to what I was saying, to leaving everything to the Supreme Court. Right. But nevertheless, there is a conflict between the individual who asserts a right against the Congress, which I don't equate with the people. And then the Supreme Court is the only institution we have to adjudicate a claim of right or at least a claim of limited power between the individual person and the Congress, which is not the same thing as departmentalism. There still is, there now is a case in controversy that needs to be resolved. I'm just wondering if, and I really appreciated everything you just said in your response, but I'm just wondering if there's any lessons to be drawn from your previous claims or statements about executive power to claims about judicial power in that context. I don't think I would be nearly as friendly to judicial discretion as I am to executive, even though admitting that there's some discretion, this is Naomi's point, in every act of government. I'm sure that's true. And also one could say from the other standpoint that there's a kind of rule of law aspect to every act of discretion because every wise man can't rule by himself. He has to have minions and he needs rules for those minions and those rules are going to be already derogations from his wisdom. So he'll have to rule through the rule of law or the rule of administration. In other words, even Hitler would have to have rules by which his whims could be executed. The major theme of our meeting in November, the attorneys meeting, was American exceptionalism. And I'm wondering, in listening to this discussion about executive power, particularly in the context of war and perhaps a war that may last a hundred years, the crusades, if you will, have been going on for a thousand years and you might argue that this is just another chapter in the crusades. Is there anything to be, is there any tragedy in the fact that our country is now in this situation? And is there anything that American exceptionalism has to say about looking at all of these issues? And is there going to be any casualty, let's say, of the rule of law or of any values that are associated with American exceptionalism that emerge from this debate? All right. I mean, again, a really big question that we can't possibly answer in a short period of time. But what I would say is that I think a crucial lesson of American history is that it used to be thought that the countries that really survive and 
defeat others in conflict over time are the ones with, you know, strong dictators with unlimited power and, you know, discretion and so forth. Uh, I think historically uh, the U.S. and some other uh, countries as well have shown that uh, you can prevail in difficult conflicts uh, even with limited government and that uh, in cases where during our conflicts uh, presidents have exceeded the bounds of limited government more often than not, that has proven to be both harmful and counterproductive to uh, the cause of pursuing victory, even if that wasn't evident completely at the time. I think it is evident in retrospect, uh, and we should take into account such lessons as the Japanese internment uh, going forward, that I think we can defeat our enemies without uh, undermining the principles of limited government, or at least without undermining them nearly as much as a lot of people claim that, uh, that we have to. Uh, I would also note that if this war really does last 100 years, that means we will have to make provisions for it to be waged, uh, or even 10 or 20 years, we have to make provisions for it to be waged under mediocre as well as great presidents and under stupid as well as wise ones, uh, and that argues for a greater risk aversion uh, than if we could be certain uh, that you know, a Winston Churchill or an Abraham Lincoln would be at the helm. Although, as I said, even Lincoln uh, overstretched his powers considerably and in ways that in retrospect, uh, seem counterproductive. So if we do everything stupid to begin with, we avoid any danger that arises later from stupidity. Uh, it's not stupid to plan against the risk of stupidity. I think it's a contrary. It's more stupid not to. Also, I disagree with your, uh, <laughs> uh, I disagree with your st uh, statement that the president has a shorter time horizon. That, I mean, this is some kind of answer to your to your. Uh, question. If we're going to have a long-term war on terror, I think this is um, um, much, um, much better addressed by uh, presidential discretion than by congressional lawmaking. And that, uh, um, the, pr the president's discretion deals with two things. First, uh, the immediate and the urgent, the, the necessary, the, the things that arise that haven't been predicted because things, it's not possible to predict everything that uh, that happens uh, in the future. Uh, but but also uh, the president uh, deals with long term planning in a way that Congress does not. The C Congress deals, I would say, when it passes laws with the near term and the medium term, but it doesn't have much concern for the coherency of laws. That, that is much more uh, the task of a uh, president who's l looking over the long term for um, um, what his uh, legacy, i.e. his fame, will be, because people not only act uh, on the basis of self-interest, but also on the basis of desire for fame. And, um, and, and, and so uh, the, 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 uh, things like the, the New Deal, the Fair Deal, the Great Society, the Reagan Revolution, all this uh, it comes out of presidential discretion, which is therefore concerned not just with the immediate and, and, and the urgent, but also with uh, the very long term, as far as one can see um, ahead. Uh, and and it, it's for this reason that I think the Constitution originally had uh, no limit on the number of terms that the president could serve. In fact, much of the argumentation on power of the president uh, in the Federalist uh, has to do with this uh, with this provision. And this was an unwise constraint uh, introduced by the Republicans retrospectively uh, against uh, 
FDR after World War II. John Harrison. Thank you, John. Well, Professor Mansfield actually started to ask my question a moment ago, but I'm going to ask it of Naomi Rao and see perhaps he'll have a little more to say about the topic. And Naomi, you used executive and president as if they were interchangeable, but they're not. The president is a single individual. The executive is hundreds of thousands, millions of individuals. The president alone has gone through the unique political process of being elected and has been selected usually for reasons having to do with that particular individual's character, that particular individual's claim to wisdom, to the capacity to exercise discretion, to exercise prerogative, and the same is not true of the Assistant Secretary of Commerce for strangling the economy. Or I'm thinking about Dr. Strangelove or General Ripper. There are a lot of people out there in the executive branch who, have, who are closer to the fringe, let's say. And so it seems to me that the arguments in favor of prerogative, in favor of discretion, that work for the president personally don't work for the president's agents and delegates. There's always some gap between the principal and the agent, even if you believe in a legal matter, as a legal matter in a unitary executive. And as Professor Mansfield said a moment ago, somebody is going to operate through the rule of law with respect to all of those subordinates, either Congress, the lawmaker, or in some fashion, the president. And so really doesn't the argument you're making, and to some extent that Professor Mansfield has made, apply to personal decisions of the president, but not the vast bulk of the decisions made in the executive branch, including those that implement broad policies formulated by the president. Yeah, I mean, I guess I didn't mean to say that, that every member of the executive branch has, you know, discretion to act how they see fit. I mean, I guess the, the administration is able to act with discretion only to the extent that they're being overseen by the president or that the president is part of that decision making. I mean, the reason that the executive branch can exercise discretion is because ultimately they're accountable to the president and the president is accountable to the people and to the Congress. So I guess I didn't mean to conflate those two things. The executive power, apart from the president, does reflect uh, the power of partisanship um, uh, in, in several different ways. Uh, the, the, the partisanship of the, um, of the agency, say the State Department point of view, which may last over uh, a number of presidential administrations. Um, uh, but it also can reflect the partisanship of, uh, the, of the president so that uh, his discretion is, uh, works within, not so much within the limits or confines as um, in, uh, along the channels of the, of the party in, uh, for which he is elected. And, and one of the points uh, in proof of, your, uh, of Naomi's view that uh, uh, discretion is everywhere is, uh, is the, 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 the possibility of the or the regularity of partisan interpretation of the laws by the executive branch. So that uh, the, the EPA may be working with the same laws under uh, George Bush as under Bill Clinton, but uh, the, the, the results will be notably uh, or at least remarkably uh, different. And, 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 uh, and those to whom the laws apply will, uh, will, will take notice. So if partisan interpretation of a law is possible, then that, that's a kind of derogation 
of the of, of, of the idea of, of rule of law, which seems to imply that the law will rule uh, without uh, reference to how or in what partisan um, spirit it will be administered. No, we have uh, we have parties, and, and and parties are a kind of discretionary fact factor in our uh, our system that um, w- w- wasn't altogether. Uh, Contemplated at the beginning, but that still is very important right now. Um, Michelle Boardman. I have a question for Ilya, but given Ilya's views, it might not make sense to Ilya, but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> um, I think, I assume we can all agree that there are questions of constitutional indeterminacy, right? Where the Constitution does not answer certain questions. And the reason this perhaps isn't useful a question of Ilya's, it sounds as though you actually think there are clear answers to the question about the division of power between the executive and Congress as to war making, which maybe, maybe you don't believe that. I, it was always in my understanding that very few people actually think that's a determinant area. But surely there are other areas of indeterminacy between the president and Congress as to international powers, certain aspects of war making. And my question is, if we have an area of indeterminacy, why isn't it the case that the, the, the answer the Constitution sets up is that each party pursue the power they have? So the president attempts to execute and Congress attempts to constrain. Uh, the courts have some role. All of the things that Naomi has listed as the public's power to attempt to constrain. Why isn't that the answer? There would be ex- exercises the power they have. Well, I guess there's a narrow question, a broad question. A narrow one is, do I think this is a determinate area? The broader one is, well, how do you deal with the indeterminate ones? Uh, I guess I'll take the broader one first. Uh, I'm not, I mean, maybe I just misunderstand your formulation, Michelle, in which case you should correct me, but I don't think the answer can be that each side should pursue the power they have because the point at issue is precisely what is the power that they legitimately have, right? So uh, we have to have some kind of, uh, you know, as neutral as possible a tribunal try to determine that and, you know, despite their defects and to some extent sympathetic to Randy Burnett's position he was talking about earlier that uh, in these cases we have to have uh, or at least in many cases, we have to have a judicial determination of this, not because the judiciary is perfect or won't make huge mistakes. They are imperfect and will make them, but because the alternative is to allow the other branches to uh, overreach their powers, perhaps to a very great extent. Uh, as to the narrow question of do I think this is a determinate area, I certainly think there are lots of indeterminacies in the area of foreign policy and war powers in general. I do not think, however, that it is indeterminate uh, the question of whether the administration has virtually unlimited power to disregard congressional statutes any time they believe that doing so might further the war effort. That, I think, is clearly debarred by Article 1, Section 8. Yeah, but let me say for the record, no one believes that. No, uh, no, well, nobody's actually taking the, even the President Bush doesn't take the unbridled, you know, unconstrained, I can shred the Constitution if I want, I am invincible position. Well, no, he's, he's not saying, it's true, he's not saying I can shred the Constitution, but he is saying that the Constitution means uh, that anything that is at all connected to uh, war making, uh, even in a remote way, that he can undertake it even if uh, there's a congressional statute specifically barring the type of action that he uh, want, wanted to undertake. So it's true. Uh, he's not. He, he's saying I'm not trading the Constitution, but he's only not saying he's not trading it to the extent that the Constitution already, in his view, gives him all the power that uh, he might possibly want to claim. 
Let me ask one very brief follow-up, which is there are clearly areas where the Constitution does not give the judiciary the power to review what is going on between Congress and the President. And I think we can agree that at least historically the way our courts have exercised judicial review, there are going to be lots of areas about the execution of war wherein the courts will not get to put in a vote as to who's right between the President and the Congress. What then? Uh, I guess it depends on what you mean by uh, such an area. Uh, I think there are going to be lots of areas where somebody might challenge the presidential action and the courts could say, well, we throw this case out because uh, it's clearly obvious the president does have the power to do this. Uh, I do not think that there should be a significant number of areas where the president is engaging in conduct which is, in fact, illegal, uh, but the court <laughs> says, well, you know, this is not, it's not a judicial function to rule on this illegality. Uh, I think the, the way we give the president necessary discretion is you know, through the wide range of areas uh, where his conduct is, in fact, legal, uh, often because there's no, simply because there's no statute against it. Uh, I do not think the right way to go is to say, well, even illegal conduct should be immunized from challenge uh, because of the, uh, you know, because there's something non-judicial uh, about the issue. Uh, we have two, time for two more short questions, Bill Otis and then Gene Meyer, and then uh, we will... Pardon? Then we will end, yeah. Well, sorry, I mean, so, someone's shaking their head in the back. I had my hand up, but I'm taking it down because you've got two questions. Okay, thank you. Okay, Bill. Tonight's discussion reminds me of why lawyers and judges should be considerably more modest than they have been in dealing with the questions um, involved in the war on terror. The question we've been principally discussing tonight is how we can constrain the power of the president or the executive. The country used to understand that in time of war, the prepossessing question before it was how we can constrain the power of our enemy and not merely constrain our enemy, but defeat him to the point where we have our foot on his neck, because otherwise his foot will be on ours. The processes of law, unlike the, unlike the exercise of discretion, are ill-suited to answer this prepossessing question, because the processes of law will all will institutionally, courts institutionally, and lawyers institutionally tend to ask, well, what does, what does law provide? Obviously, the law is not going to provide the answer to defeating our enemy. The law can only provide the answer to constraining our leaders. And it is for that reason that the courts and the law itself, as opposed to discretion, are ill-suited uh, to answer what we are confronting now, what happened down the street a few years ago. That is the danger to the country now, not either a paralyzed Congress, which is what we'll get with 435 leaders, or a crazy president, which we don't have and which we did not have in Roosevelt or in Lincoln. Uh, I guess that question is primarily directed at me. Okay. Uh, well, it, it, okay. Okay. Well, well then, I, and I, then I guess I'll give a very limited answer. And the limited answer is that I think it's a false dichotomy to say that 
uh, you know, there's constraining our leaders on the one hand, there's winning the war on the other, because there are many constraints on our leaders, including on executive power, that can help to win the war, uh, in particular by avoiding costly abuses, uh, which in many cases uh, can be counterproductive to cause of winning the war, uh, as well as harmful in themselves. Uh, I would also note that, yes, it's certainly important to win wars, but it's also important to try to minimize the cost of doing so, uh, and uh, constraints can serve that function as well. Uh, the fact that winning the war uh, is an important objective doesn't mean that it 100% overrides everything else, uh, even in cases where there's something that slightly helps us win the war but has imposed enormous costs somewhere else. My answer is amen. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to go back to the uh, great, to the greatness point. Uh, it, it's I, I guess I had two questions for Professor Mansfield on that. Um, is is the type of greatness you're talking about totally consistent with separation of powers? And also, is greatness in the country necessarily good for the individuals for the greatness of the individuals in it? Um. Is greatness, is greatness, the first one was, um, the, f the first point was, is... How is the relationship yeah. between separ separation of power oh, yeah. good for greatness? Uh, is, is separation of power good for greatness? Well, well yes, because uh, the kind of greatness we want is a greatness of a free republic. And it's our, our freedom uh, <coughs> requires, above all, uh, our self-government and its healthy operation. So... so um, uh, but our Constitution, in its wisdom, uh, permits departures from the ordinary law as legal <clears throat> under the Constitution, if not under ordinary law. And, and so uh, if, and as, uh, as often happens, greatness rises above the law, uh, in our case, uh, we, we have a Constitution that r rises with it and, 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 and uh, permits it. So, so that uh, we have the greatness of uh, Lincoln or a George Washington as opposed to that of Napoleon or Alexander, great conquerors. We have a, a greatness uh, which makes freedom and the ordinary life of a democracy great because that's what we've sustained over the last uh, 250 years. It's, it's, it's uh, an accomplishment that we should take pride in. And so it's, it's something that an, an ordinary citizen of a democracy can take pride in and, and, and to that extent share. It's, it's good for all of us in that way. So, so uh, and then the other, other question was, I, I've forgotten both of your questions. And, the, 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 well, is it, at all, is it always good for the individual? No. Um, if, if by good for the individual you mean uh, make him more wealthy or, or, more, or more secure, but uh, what, what, what is good for your soul? What is good for your soul is something which enlarges it and, um, and, 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 gives, and makes it respect itself more and that gives you something to be proud of. And, and, uh, and, and that's what a great president does in our country. Our greatness is wrapped up in our great presidents. Well, I think we all can agree that this has been a great panel that has enlarged our understanding. Please thank our speakers.